Hi everyone and welcome to Animal Welfare Conversations. Join us as we talk to people working towards a common goal to improve animal welfare. We'll chat to veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses, animal owners, conservationists and others who have an important part to play in care and decision making about the lives of pets, domestic animals, farm animals, zoo animals or wildlife. We'll find out more about the great work that is already happening to make the lives of animals better. If you care about animals and want a better life for them, then please follow us and join the Animal Welfare Conversation. Hi everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Animal Welfare Conversations. And today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Joe Bailey, who is currently CEO of the Humanimal Trust and has had quite a varied career working with animals, very passionate about animal welfare. Um, so welcome, Joe. And first of all, can we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your career. Yeah, no problem, Mary. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I grew up in the countryside, surrounded by animals that are farmed. And also we had the pleasure of having cats and dogs living with us as well. However, I always wanted to, a, a few more. I didn't play with dolls or Lego or anything like that. But what I did have uh, was an invisible farm or even an invisible ark, if you like. I had two cows, uh, two sheep, two goats, two chickens. Bizarrely, I had one golden eagle. I don't know where that came from, but that's what I had. And when I was very, very young and I went to nursery and then primary school from an early age, if I wasn't there to feed them, I would ask my dad to or my mum to um, and ensured that they are all being well looked after to the best of their ability. And this actually went on for a couple of years. And I think it's probably because we did sort of live in the middle of nowhere. So it was difficult to see any sort of friends as such, human friends. So I made my non-human animal friends and uh, I'm very they were very, very real to me. Well, after a few years, whether it was because my parents were slightly concerned, I don't know. But we did actually, uh, or my father did actually, buy a small small holding and dairy farm in South Wales, um, which I did take the invisible animals to. But unfortunately, over time, they became less important, I'm afraid to say, as the, uh, the real animals there needed so much more looking after. Um, and that's where my sort of love, if you like, and then that not only that love, but it grew into an appreciation of that responsibility that we have towards animals, not just ones that are under our direct care, but those also those ones that aren't under our direct care, like wild animals. That's a really interesting point that, that you made there. I mean, I, I love all this about the, the animals. I too had the same same thing. I am an imaginary lamb that I had <laughs> as, as a pet um, and, and the small holding side of things. But that responsibility, what what do you what does that look like to you that that we have a responsibility to animals? 
Yeah, it's something that I'm very passionate about. So for me, it's about, you know, we all have, or many of us have companion animals that live with us. So of course we have a duty of care to ensure that they're getting fed regularly, that they've got water when they need it, somewhere comfy to lie, shade, shelter. But actually how many of us think we have a responsibility to all beings, to all animals? You know, you see it all the time. When A perfect example of this is I was out running a couple of months ago and uh, came across a poor cat by the side of the road, a main road, and it was lying there, obviously in quite a bad way. So of course I immediately stopped, um, put something over it so that it wouldn't be frightened, um, gave it some of my water from my water bottle, but it was too distressed to drink and tried to flag down vehicles to stop. And a few people did slow down, but then because they thought I'd been injured. And when I said, oh no, 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 it's a cat here, please, can you help me get it to a vet? They were like, oh no, is it bleeding? We don't want that in our car. Oh no, no, that's not our responsibility, it's not our cat. Finally, thank goodness, after about a quarter of an hour, someone did stop and we both went and we got this cat to a vet. But that's what I mean by responsibility, whether that had been a badger or a cat or a bird or a mouse, whatever it had been, I feel I have to do something to prevent that animal from suffering. Why should we just turn a blind eye and expect someone else to do that? We all have to take a responsibility. And if we can't, then we find someone who can. Yeah. And and that, that story, I, 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 I'm thinking of my own situation. I used to lecture at the college in Edinburgh to vet nurses. And I was going into a lecture this day and there's a cat on the road in front of me. I have to stop, I have to pick the cat up, I have to take it to the nearest vet, unfortunately the cat died, I'm then late for my lecture to the vet nurses, thankfully they were very understandable with all of this because they would do the same, but it was so, the other cars were just going past this cat, and how, how can you do that? And I, I do think it's just the way some of us are made that we do that and, and some people don't. But do, do you think, you know, you mentioned all the, the, the animals that, that you lived with and that side of things, but do you think your career and getting to where you are now, that that's possibly played a part in this as well? Yes, very much so. I mean, it was it was a wonderful childhood on a farm, as anybody knows. You learn and appreciate um, what goes on so it's delightful at times seeing the birth of a new animal, seeing how they respond to you, how they how you can spend time with them. They truly do become your friends. But it's also incredibly distressing as well, especially as a child, when you see them be ill or when you see them go off to market and you start understanding the realities uh, of the food chain. Um, and for me, I well, my whole family actually at that time became vegetarian, which wasn't great for farmers. Uh, and uh, certainly the local farmers all around thought it was hilarious that my dad, not only being English, because it was very much a, a Welsh farm and a Welsh community, had also then turned vegetarian. Although we did find him sneakily going and having roast dinners on a Sunday at the local farm. But yeah, I definitely think it's where my passion for animals grew all animals and it was then that I decided at a later date to become or to try and become an RSPCA inspector uh, and was lucky enough to be accepted so that was my very first um, career path and it, that was a wonderful experience I was a, an RSPCA inspector for seven years covering all animals I started off 
in South Wales, covering the cities, uh, Swansea, but also the Gower. So I had a real cross mix of animals, from companion animals to wild animals, to basking sharks and seals, and to obviously farmed animals as well. So that was great. Again, a, a difficult job, very difficult, um, reacting to calls of deliberate cruelty, to neglect and abandonment, um, but also uh, at times being reactive. Uh, sorry, proactive and actually helping with educating and awareness. And that was a fantastic part of it. You know, the rescues, rescuing animals and actually going and talking to people about how they could improve their animals' welfare and seeing that in action. You know, I remember this one time, you know, I'd gone out and this woman, bless her, she was just collecting cats and she, but she couldn't really look after them as well as she thought she was doing. She had too many. They were breeding. She couldn't afford to neuter them. And just by going and rescuing some, taking them off and getting the others neutered, instructing her talking to her, educating her about how to look after those cats. You know, when you went back a few months later and she'd got a much reduced number because the others had been rehomed and it was just a much nicer atmosphere for her and for those cats. And that that makes such a difference. It, it does. It does. And did you did you ever come across situations where owners like like your cat lady who thought they were doing the best things for them? But I, I can remember some owners where they were scared to come to the vets yeah. because maybe it was an old arthritic dog or, or it had a skin problem, um, but they were scared that I was going to effectively give them a vow for, for one of a Scottish term, you know, they, they, they get them into trouble um, and they wouldn't bring the animal in. And, and, and that I saw as a huge problem that these owners weren't being cruel intentionally, but you ended up with a welfare problem because they were effectively scared to come and talk to the RSPCA, SSPCA, the vets, whoever, when actually we're there to help. And that's what I was trying to get across to them. You come and see me. I am never going to do that because I'm glad you're here and we'll work together and, and that whole education piece as well. And it's quite interesting you've mentioned education there because I think every podcast we've recorded so far, education has been one of the things that's that's yeah. come out of that. Um, how how do you think we can better educate the public about animals? Yeah. Education is the most important thing because I think of it as a ladder and it's that incremental ladder, isn't it? So it needs to start off when children are very, very young, teaching about them that vital connection, how intrinsically linked we are to other animals. So beginning from, you know, reading, helping your children read about that connection at school, in the curriculum, making sure people understand about animal health and welfare. And then obviously going up the different stages uh, into the universities as well. So, And it's also not just children that need to be taught. It's also about the older generations who perhaps don't realize, and as you said, it's not, a lot of it isn't deliberate cruelty. It's tradition. It's because their families did it that way. Their family changed their dog in the garden because it thought it liked to be in the garden more than the house and they didn't want it to run off or they don't or they drown kittens. Absolutely abhorrent. 
but there are some people who they've seen their parents and their grandparents and their great parents do it and they just think oh gosh it's a better way for them to die than anything else and I mean gosh that's absolutely awful that that still happens in this day and age but sadly it does and yes sometimes that's deliberate but there's an awful lot of times it's just purely because they don't know what else to do with them and they just want that advice that guidance they do don't they and there's there's so much that we can do and on this journey that you've been with animals it has now brought you to the human animal trust and um, which i'm hoping you're going to tell us a little bit yeah, more no about <laughs> all of that um but the first question i wanted to get this out of the way because human animal trust focuses on one medicine yeah as opposed to one health and I'm guilty of this I use the terms interchangeably <laughs> um there is a difference there is can, can you explain to us what the difference is yeah very much so so one medicine differs from one health in that one health very much focuses on the health connection between humans and animals and the environment and issues such as zoonotic diseases um, like antimicrobial resistance and food safety. So therefore, One Health's primary concern is with human health benefits. Whereas quite simply, One Medicine is about sharing knowledge, sharing data, experience, technology in order to help humans and animals. It's about reciprocity, not just what animals do for us, but also what we can do for animals. So with that in mind, then, can you tell us a bit more about the Humanimal Trust and, and yeah. the work that you do there? Absolutely. Yeah. So Humanimal Trust was set up in 2014 by Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, and he very much wanted to advocate for one medicine. He wanted a world where vets and doctors and researchers and nurses and all the allied professions are actually coming together, collaborating to learn from clinical trials. So in other words, real patients that's what's important learning from patients who are actually already suffering so we can learn from each other because we have so many connections to animals there are many cancers um, that are very similar as are the treatments many injuries that can be remedied again in exactly the same way so without having to use an otherwise healthy animal in an experiment by learning from those real patients of all species we can actually go on to improve lives and ultimately to save lives so how how does the trust go about doing this so many many ways so we are trying to find and fund alternatives to animal experiments um, and going back to education we are from a young age going in and teaching school children about the connection the vital connection between humans and animals and then from secondary education and on we're looking at cpd we're looking at setting up one medicine societies um, so in many universities medical uh, facilities for um, vets and doctors and nurses um, they are already learning learning about, about One Health, but we're actually going in, setting up One Medicine Societies, and, you know, so they can all come together and learn from each other, which is which is great. And we're also hoping to produce, we've already got one book um, that we're collaborating on for younger ages uh, on Humanimal and how and that why that connection is so important. And that's with the author Christopher Lloyd, who 
who's written a brilliant book on it. Next year, we'll have another one coming out, which is superb. And then we're also thinking and looking at sort of a one medicine guidance manual, if you like, that will be great for professional students, but also for the lay public as well, just to understand actually why one medicine is so important. No, absolutely. It's fantastic. And I mean, on one hand, you look at it and you go, well, that's obvious. Of course, we should be doing this. Yeah. But then you ask the question, well, why aren't we doing this? And I suppose I've had an interesting career teaching vet nurses, working with human nurses when I was doing that and being exposed to how the world of human medicine works. Um, And now I work with medics. Um, And the challenge that I see a lot of is, you know, like you said, that that people aren't cruel on purpose. They just, it's just the way things are. With human and medical education, there's no consideration of animals. It just doesn't enter their head. And I was speaking to um, a human uh, nurse. I, I, I know it sounds strange using the word human nurse, but it's what I call them as opposed to veterinary. Um, I was speaking to a nurse uh, the other week and we were talking about pain relief and she talked about fentanyl and I went oh yes yes aware of that and she really I went why wouldn't I I'm a vet of course all right well we use this thing called a swinge driver Mary I, I mean I really did pull a face at this point I went yes yes we use them in the vet really she couldn't believe that in the vet world, we would use equipment that was the same as their equipment. So how, and I know I'm biased because I'm a vet, okay? And if there are any medics or nurses listening, I'm great that you're here and you're listening to us. But how can we break down this artificial wall that has been created between human medicine and veterinary medicine where the medics... But I've met, it just doesn't occur to them and they're quite surprised that we do similar things. I think we've just got to keep on raising awareness. And it's so important we get into these universities and especially, I mean, I think there's there's eight, perhaps nine now um, areas in the country where they have medical and veterinary universities alongside each other. And actually bringing them together, either in those societies that I talked about, or even like um, there was a university in America years ago, Tufts University, that actually trialed bringing students together for their first year of learning and then separating them afterwards into the species they wanted to go into, whether that was humans or non-humans. Because the, the first part of that teaching about anatomy, physiology, all of those other things is actually comparatively very similar so that's the sort of thing we need to be doing is just bringing these people together we have we have a hub the humanimal hub which we hope will bring all professionals together and I really would urge any professionals that are listening to have a look at that we have something called a collaboration cafe where people can ask questions and they can you know form their own sort of groups and they can just get together and explore these options because Everyone truly will benefit from that because there are billions of people in this world. There are billions of animals in this world. And if we can all learn from each other, we are all going to be patients at some point in our lives, sadly. So don't we want the very best care, the very best treatment we can actually have? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that thinking about 
a dog, you know, I did my PhD on atopic dermatitis and a dog with atopy is very similar to a human with atopy and the pathological processes are very similar and the treatments that we then use are very similar. And if we can just open up those channels of discussion, I think we have a whole, an awful lot that we'll discover that we have in common. You know, yeah. we're much more alike. Uh, than absolutely. We are. And not just the big diseases, um, mm. but also things like mental health, which for a long time, people, you know, it's funny, isn't it? You know, you people do compartmentalize certain breeds or species of animals. And because of that, they think, well, and, and it's because they don't want to justify delving too deeply. Um, but they think, oh, yes, our, our cat or our dog or, or our, our, our fancy rat or our guinea pig. Yes, they've got feelings. Yes, they understand me. Yes, they when they see me be emotional, they'll come up and they'll lick my tears or they'll come and, uh, and have a cuddle. But we don't want to think it about animals that are in laboratories, them being sentient. We don't want it to think about animals that are farmed because then we don't want to think, oh, gosh, we're going to eat that later. So we we do. We sort of, you know, we put them in their little box so we don't have to delve too deeply. But in actual fact, you know, all animals are sentient and welfare is very much about physical and mental health. It's about well-being. It's about choices. And I think this is really important that we not just think about the choices we give to our companion animals, you know, different water bowls or water fountains or whatever to encourage our animals to drink because we know they can suffer urinary tract infections if they don't drink enough water at certain times. But also we need to give them choices of how to help them feel more comfortable, how to give them the best life we actually can, play opportunities. And I think that comes into effect not just for the animals in our direct care, our companion animals, but also the animals that are farmed, the animals that are being used, working animals, all should have those opportunities as well. And going back to let's not forget the wildlife who really do struggle at certain times of year. Let's give them what we can to ensure that they they thrive as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've possibly just answered my next question, so, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, you mentioned there about the physical and the mental side of things mm. and the having choices. Um, I was going to ask you a, a running question that we have in, in every podcast um, where we ask our guests, um, what does animal welfare mean to you? Yeah. And we've had a different answer in every single podcast. And I think this is marvellous. You know, we've had the academic answer. We've <laughs> had the emotional answer. And, and that's why I'm asking it, because I want to see where we go with this. Um, so you've mentioned physical, mental and choices. Is it what else does animal welfare mean to you? Yeah, I think they're the I think they're the, the biggest for me. So it's very much, you know, I've spent my whole life being asked similar questions. What why I'm so invested in animal welfare, why it's my passion, my reason for being, if you like. And I think it is about that physical and mental health and, and well-being of us all. From the animal's perspective. Um, about, but it's also about how we treat them. It's about our responsibility, going back to what I said uh, at the beginning, and our kindness and compassion and consideration for their needs, what will help them live the best possible life they can. And that does come down again to those choices. We all need choices. And I think there's one, there's one story I think back 
to about this. So when I was with um, um, RSPCA Assured, I was head of welfare uh, and well-being for RSPCA Assured. And I remember one day going out to see a very large um, laying hen business. And as I drove down the track, on the left, I saw some huge buildings. And on the right, after the fork, I saw lovely free range fields and ponds and, and, and beautiful low barns and hens that were outside pecking. They had enrichment bales to climb on and, uh, and it was fantastic, they were in great condition. And I asked at the gate, what, what's on the left? Are they the office block? And they were the intensive hens. They were what used to be the battery cages, which are now enriched cages. And I said, right, so who decides? Again, it's about choice. Who chooses when those hens from a young age come onto this site? Who chooses? Are they going to go right? Are they going to go left? And so on the day, it's where they need to go. And that really hit me. I thought, oh, my gosh. So coming down to that day, it literally is a choice of, OK, you go right and you're going to have all these choices and you're going to be able to exhibit your natural behavior. You're going to be have a, 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 a good life or you're going to go left and you're going to live in a cage the size of a piece of A4 paper. Yeah. And that really hit me. And I just thought, my gosh. So it's about choice from that perspective of those people who were responsible for those animals under their care. It's also then about choice as consumers when they're buying their eggs to look at labels. But it's also more than just the and it's and it's choice of those free range birds. They have a choice. They have a choice about whether they're going to stay in the barn for the day or whether when the pop holes are open, they're going to run outside and jump on a hay bale and peck and exhibit their natural behaviours and play with their friends. That's their choice. Yeah. And I think that's really extremely important. I'm just I'm thinking other conversations we've had when I've been chatting to other people. And uh, at this point, we quite often then get into politics, <laughs> um, social decisions the economy and and all those sorts of challenges which I don't I don't really want to go there today but it is very difficult isn't it you know for, for consumers to know what is happening to understand what is happening um what is the truth that's out there because we do see so many videos online that are possibly anti-farming or have an agenda um and it's to know, well, what is the reality of what's happening on that farm? And then how, what can I afford to feed my children this week? Yeah. Um, and how, how do we do that? And yeah, you, you, you have that image of going left or going right is going to stay with me now, Joe. You've, you've planted that in my head. It is that random, just depending on what day of the week it is what happens yeah. to that animal. I think we need to come back to that in another podcast. And, and I need to think about that a bit more because that is really quite stark. Um, I'm going to go to a more positive side of things while you leave me with that image to think about for a minute. Um, what I wanted these podcasts to do is to look at the challenges, absolutely, but to also showcase good examples, positive examples of brilliant animal welfare, things that are being done, people that are doing marvellous things out there. 
So from everything that you've seen throughout your career, do any examples of really good welfare come to mind? Yes, so many. And I think too many, really. And I'm not That's sort good. of about backing out of this, <laughs> but too many to go. And I think it comes down to it comes down to individual, it comes down to little things because we all know there are some incredible charities out there globally, not just in the UK, but globally that are doing incredible things. And I think collaboration is is so important because it should not be about egos. It should not be about competition. It should be about as many people trying to drive forward a movement to ensure that we can, you know, we can all make a difference we can choose to be kind, we can choose to be compassionate, we can choose to step up and actually do something. So I think coming together like that is what is so important. But for me, it's everyday things. For me, the best welfare I see, the best animal welfare I see is when I go out on a walk or run and I see someone walking their dog and not pulling it on its leash when it wants to stop and have a sniff. Mm -hmm. That's welfare. You're letting yeah. that dog do what it wants to do. When I see someone pick a bee up and give it a drop of water, it takes one minute, but it saves that bee's life. And more importantly, it shows that intrinsic motivation that person has to do something positive to save a little life. And by, you know, I was thinking today, I was trying to do some sums and I am terrible at math. So please forgive me. And you may get loads of callers calling in saying, oh, my gosh, you know, great person, but terrible math. So I was thinking oh. every day I can try and inspire just one person to be kinder, to be more compassionate, to feel differently about animals and consider their welfare. That means that in five years, I will have inspired 1,825 people and in 10 years, 3,650 people. So imagine if they also do the same in one year, and this is where I may be a little bit out, so I do apologize. That means there could be 1,332,000 people who have actually changed their mind or been made aware about how to look at animal welfare, how to improve the lives of an animal. And by improving the life of another animal, you are also helping your own well-being as well, because you haven't turned away. You've made a difference. That's amazing. That That is mind-blowing. Just, <sighs> just thinking about that. Um, it's interesting because um, I was reading Sean Wensley's book and he has a, a section at the end all about how can you make a difference? And it's all about the little things that you can do. Right. And and just helping that one animal, that, that example of, you know, giving a bee some water or, you know, if, if I see, we have quite a few moles around here and they end up on the road for whatever reason you know and I stop the car and I get them off the road and I move them and and then I feel quite pleased with myself I don't know what it then does if it goes back on the road later on or, or whatever um but I've tried and and that's all we can do really is just to try and and do our best for them so I, I think that's a marvelous example of well I expected you to give me you know one example about a dog or something but you've given us something more global in that answer that that can involve everybody so that that's fantastic um 
on the on the flip side of mm-hmm. that, you've mentioned some of the challenges already, but what what do you think is the biggest challenge for animal welfare? Yeah, there's there's that again, there's so many, sadly. Although I want to be positive and, and I am yeah. a positive person, but yeah, I think complacency. I think uh many of us feel that others are going to be dealing with an issue, so therefore it'll be okay. So we can we can we can go about our daily business because somebody else is going to pick up that cat from the road. Somebody else is going to um uh, you, you know improve their life so or or make sure that they ha- uh, put to sleep or whatever it might be so we don't have to bother with that we can we can rest assured someone else will deal with it whereas nine times out of ten no nobody else is dealing with it so we should have we should have done that um it's like you know going back to uh, uh, farming in particular and not just farming let's look at fur farming i i, I was reading an article recently where they were saying that, you know, everyone is so against fur farming, so anti-fur farming. And yet the fur farming lobby are now coming back and saying, well, I know what we'll do. We'll improve welfare standards for the animals that are farmed for their fur. The problem is with that, then it's going to be acceptable. People will think, oh, well, that's okay then. If they improve that cage slide, cage size slightly and if they you know give them some nicer dinner or if they put a little ball in for them to play with then that'll be okay and they actually won't then do anything about it and it will just become all right to do and I think so complacency I think is is a big issue um you know we we think that you know we can justify treating them differently if we compartmentalize them like I went back to saying earlier we think, you know, it's OK to put them in confinement. It's OK to use, abuse and exploit them because they're this certain species. And that's what we do. It's what we've always done. Um, and we're not treating them. We're not treating animals the same. But I also think advances in technology, whereas they can have a positive, can also be a negative, especially to the environment. Um, intensive production systems. We know, yes, that they might be creating more food. However, what are they doing to the natural environment where a lot of animals actually live? So many species are becoming extinct. So many more are going to become extinct, including us, if we don't start taking responsibility. We've just all got to pull together, not turn a blind eye to suffering, not think that someone else is going to do it. But actually, each one of us can make a difference and each one of us together as a group can make so much more of a difference and I think that's what we all need to do is join forces speak up speak out and be kind is there anything else that we could do just to improve life for animals in general whether that's pet animals wildlife animals yeah I think we can learn as much as we possibly can about them we can learn how alike we are, both mentally and physically, because we are so much better together. We are so much stronger together. And if we do all want a future on this wonderful planet we're living on, then we need each other. Therefore, we have to look after each other. And it can be some, something as simple as, you know, when I'm not running on a weekend, I go out wombling. So I go up, out basically for a few hours every either on a Saturday or Sunday picking up bags and bags of other people's rubbish which is quite annoying when you think my gosh why can't they just take it home with them 
but actually it makes you feel great because you're getting exercise, you're going out in the fresh air and every broken can you picked up or piece of glass or balloon or whatever it might be, you know that is potentially saving an animal's life from stepping on it, from ingesting it, from whatever it may be. And it gives you that great sense of it. And also it has the knock-on effect again of other people seeing you doing it and some laughing, yeah, and even some throwing rubbish at you, which is lovely. Uh, But majority of them either join in or say, when are you doing this? Let's do this. We're, we're going to do that. And then you see other people going out on a weekend and you think, wow, that's fantastic. You know, and then in a few years time, hopefully there'll be more and more people. And yeah, it's I mean, for me, what, you know, professionally, I suppose, if you were to say, you know, what 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 do you want to happen in the next few years? I think professionally for me, it, it with Humanimal Trust, it comes down to getting one medicine as well known as One Health, about getting that message out there, but by that collaboration can help improve lives and save lives. We will be finding and funding more replacements to animal experiments. We'll be sharing knowledge on a routine basis from real patients, actual patients, to help other lives. I think that's really important. And from a professional point of view, educating right from a young age, setting up those one medicine societies and really helping those professionals study together. Personally, I just think if we can inspire one person every day to make a difference, to be kinder, to be more considerate and more compassionate to another being, then we should feel good about ourselves and we will have a better future. That that's an amazing place to end the conversation, Joe. I you will definitely make a difference. I mean, your enthusiasm, your passion for this shines through the conversation. And and I am sure you are having that impact and encouraging other people to follow your example and to do all of this and make lives better for animals. Um, I could could keep this conversation going for another hour quite easily. Um, I think we need to get you back on another (laughs) episode um, to go over lots more different aspects of all of this. Um, But thank you so much. You've given us loads to think about, about responsibility, about the decisions that we are making, about the way that the impact that people have on animals' lives and the decisions that we make and how little things can make a big difference. So thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, Mary. Thank you to Joe for sparing the time to tell us more about her work and that of the Humanimal Trust. You can find out more about their work in the show notes. The main thing I'm going to take away from this conversation is how everyone can make a difference to animal welfare. If you would like to keep up to date with the podcast, please follow us and subscribe to our newsletter. As always, thanks to Gurley and Fraser for supporting the production of this podcast. We look forward to you joining the next Animal Welfare Conversation.